Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to <coughs> Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake. Thanks so much for joining us this evening, Saturday, March 16th, 5 p.m. here on the East Coast. Joining me, as always, is uh, co-host and, of course, founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm doing great today, Jake. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, so it's great to be back. I always uh, look forward to uh, the shows, but let's introduce tonight's guest. Dave Nichols is uh, the founding president of the Hefter Research Institute and uh, distinguished chair in pharmacology at Purdue University. Nichols is considered to be one of the world's top experts on psychedelics. His recent studies investigate the phylogeny and structure of serotonin receptors and their signaling systems. The general theme of his research is to understand how changes in brain neurochemistry affect behavior. Dave, welcome to tonight's program. Glad to be here. So, uh, Dave, I don't think we've ever uh, had a chance to sit down and talk. I've read many interviews uh, with you, and uh, I'm always uh, intrigued by uh, how long you've been in this field. When did you first start working in uh, the field of psychedelic chemistry? Well, actually, uh, that was what I worked on for my, in my graduate studies for my Ph.D., and I started graduate school in 1969. That's right. So it it was there weren't a whole lot of people doing this in 1969, and you must have been um, no, carving um, a, carving a niche for yourself there. Yeah, Sasha, uh, Sasha Shogun was publishing most of the simple stuff. Uh, there were a couple of fellows named Bennett Morn and Bennington that were in Alabama that published sporadically, but there really wasn't much going on in the field. And um, that was. Because of the uh, the legal restrictions, or people just didn't see that there was any future in it. What, well, nineteen. Why, why was there no? Yeah, the, <clears throat> the Controlled Substances Act was not passed until nineteen seventy, and I started graduate school in sixty nine. But there had already been a lot of hysteria, and I think a lot, lot of social uh, uh, disapproval of this, and there really wasn't any uh, funding for research any major funding for research because this wasn't a field outside of a drug abuse field. It wasn't a field that anyone recognized had any real value. So you went into this field. Uh, did you did you think that there would be a future in it, or was it just something you were following your, your personal passion? Well, <clears throat> the cool thing about graduate school uh, is that you could kind of do your own research and that appealed to me, and I was intrigued by how these worked. I guess I never really thought about the fact that it would the field just completely would dry up. Um, but I really just was doing it because it was what I really enjoyed and thought was very interesting. And uh, and then, of course, when I graduated and went to Purdue in 74, I kept doing it and ultimately got funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So um, things just sort of worked out. Uh <clears throat> I, you know, a lot of people go to graduate school and their thought is, okay, where am I going to go after I finish? What kind of job am I going to get? What am I interested in? And for me, I actually had been working and had a family before I went to graduate school. So for me, it was like, okay, what do I want to do while I'm in graduate school? Because I've been working my butt off supporting a family and going to school. Now, graduate school is going to be kind of like a vacation in a sense. Were you working was, as a chemist or did you have a different career? I actually started out in chemical engineering and, and really found the mathematics kind of not to my liking, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And sure. after two after two years dropped out, my parents weren't very uh, well-to-do. Uh, they struggled in, and came up with the first semester's tuition for me at University of Cincinnati. And that was a place that appealed to them because there was a co-op program, so you could work half-time and pay your own way. So I lived at home and commuted to school, which socially was not a very uh, – satisfactory arrangement as I subsequently discovered, but that's the way it worked. So when I dropped out of engineering, there wasn't any way to go back to school. So I thought, well, I'll go to work. I'll get some jobs in industries around Cincinnati, which is close to where I live, save some money and go back to school full-time as a chemistry major. And uh, University of Cincinnati had an evening college division where you could take basically any class that they gave in the daytime. It just took you twice as long to, to get the credits. So I started going to a night school just to keep in uh, up with the academics while I was working. And so I worked for a a number of years and went to school at night. Oh, so it wasn't your typical experience. You were ready. You were already working. Yeah. I, when I went to graduate, I went to graduate school. The project we had discussed for a master's degree, uh, I finished in the first semester. So it was really, it was really duck soup because in industry, 
uh, we had to, we had to be there at eight and leave at five and you couldn't come in overnight. You couldn't work overtime. So you had to plan your experiment. So I typically, uh, in order to be productive, had two or three different things going on at the same time, uh, so that I could get a lot done. And when I went to grad school, nobody had those kind of habits. So I was still doing two and three things at a time and really planning my day out between eight and five. But then I'd come in and, and I'd work on Saturdays and Sundays some. So I got quite a lot done. Now, when you're talking about the experiments you were working on in graduate school, were these animal studies, or were you working on something different at that time? In graduate school, it was primarily focused on the synthesis of substances related to mescaline, phenethylamine-type hallucinogens. But I also did uh, studies with rats uh, in, a, in a, an assay called Condition Avoidance Response, where we found that uh, psychedelics or hallucinogens disrupted their performance in that task. And so we actually did a little bit of that as well. So the conditioned avoidance response is, is it's like a startle response, but they, but it's, uh, this psychedelics overrided that response? Well, what, what, what it is, is it's an operant chamber that has, it has two rooms essentially separated by a door, uh, which opens. So there's a buzzer that comes on and then the rat has, say, five seconds to, to leave the chamber where the buzzer came on and move into the next chamber. If he doesn't do that, he gets a shock through his feet. It's mm-hmm. not painful, but unpleasant. And right. so you train, you train the rats to do that. So typically the rats get really good. The buzzer will come on and they know five seconds they'll get shocked and they may not feel like moving right away. So they'll wait till four seconds to go through, but they always go through, uh, if they're trained well, uh, because they don't like the shock. And if you give mm-hmm. them, um, if you give them a psychedelic, it, it disrupts their ability to, uh, perceive that, uh, stimulus and the condition stimulus and to know what to do. So they'll sit and they'll, then they'll start getting shocked before they run through the door. Mm-hmm. So it would disrupt them. So we were using that as a sort of a crude measure of biological activity. Right. So they either, they either lose the trigger that the, uh, that the, the buzzer means shock is coming or they lose the sense of time and become distracted between the buzzer and when they're supposed to yeah, leave I mean, the room knows, or something. Who knows what happens? But there's a, what there's an interruption there somewhere in the process. They don't, but they didn't escape the chamber, uh, before the, the shock would come on if, if mm-hmm. they had gotten an effective dose of some of the drugs we were looking at. Now, while I was a graduate student, uh, the head of the MedCam at Iowa had a, close collaboration with the head of the pharmacology department in the medical school, which was just a half a block over. So when I had experiments running and I didn't have to be there, I walked over and I was a sort of pharmacology groupie for a couple of years in, in my graduate studies. So I was watching what people were doing and assisting and seeing all the kinds of assays they were doing. Back then, of course, you didn't have as much emphasis on animal rights. Uh, they were using cats and dogs that they got from the pound for experiments and rats and mice and guinea pigs and I basically was an observer and then actually ultimately went over and did a postdoc for almost two years in the pharmacology department after I finished uh, medicinal chemistry. Well, so you, uh, when you finished graduate school, uh, you, how long was it before you actually got to start working with, with psychedelics in, in animal studies? Was it well, immediate or did it take a while? Oh, so uh, some of the compounds I made as a graduate student <clears throat> Uh, we passed over to the pharmacology department, and they actually were doing studies on uh, smooth muscle uh, contraction in response to these looking at mechanism of action. And so I uh, finished my Ph.D. in early uh, 73, January, February, and went over to pharmacology and started a postdoctoral fellowship over there until I went to Purdue. And during my postdoctoral work, I continued a little bit of the work on psychedelics, but I also wrote some statistical programs or analysis of data um, and uh, did some experiments, uh, you know, of my own, and then went to Purdue in 1974 and just and basically continued working on psychedelics. So the the postdoc in pharmacology was not really intensely focused on psychedelics, but I still continued to make a couple of compounds, do a little bit of chemistry, and tested some of the compounds I had made. For example, uh, I had published a paper where we looked at the ability of paramethoxyamphetamine or PMA and MDMA or MDA, right. mm-hmm. methamphetamine, to increase body temperature in mice and looked at the uh, toxic doses in mice. Uh, really kind of a simple paper, but still continuing to work in those the area of the psychedelic phenethylamines and amphetamines. So um, I have a question that uh, it may be a little difficult to answer, but uh, there in the psychedelic community, 
people tend to look at animal experiments as not that exciting because you're not you're not really getting first-hand reporting from a subject about what they're seeing or what they're doing. As someone who works with animals on a daily basis, how do you feel the rapport is between the experimenter and the animal subject between how you can tell what the what the animals are feeling. Can you talk about that a little bit? Is it is it is, so, I know it's different <clears throat> than working with a human subject, but there is some rapport there. Am I am I right? Yeah. Um the problem is in, in drug development or drug design, if you don't have some kind of a model, you can't do any kind of drug development. It, and obviously we couldn't test these compounds in humans. Uh, mm-hmm. or been thrown out of graduate school. So so you're faced with this conundrum like, well, I want to work on these drugs, but how can I, you know, how can I model them? Um, when I started at Purdue, uh, I started doing all my own pharmacology because there was nobody interested in psychedelics. So I was doing both chemistry and pharmacology. And on an academic budget, you say, well, you know, how can we do it cheaply and, and still get information? So we used, uh, at first we used cats from the pound mm-hmm. and and we had to be very respectful of the cats, and they also were quite expensive. Even though they came from a pound, we had to give them all kinds of injections for feline uh, viruses that they could pick up. I had a technician, an undergraduate who was working with me, who went down and played with the cats every day, tossed ball and so forth. And this was back before you had to do things like uh, home environment enrichment. You have to do that now, but we were we were doing that. And so the cats did something called a, a, a limb flick assay. If you gave mm-hmm. LSD to a cat, it sort of, sort of shakes its paw like it's got a drop of water on it. And it will also do what they called hallucinatory staring. And so mm-hmm. you just sort of look around like they were looking at something that wasn't there. And they like had they were watching patterns on the wall or, or something. Or whatever. Like you know, yeah. so, and so we had a scoring sheet that we could score cats. But that was not very high throughput. It was expensive. The cats did get sick from time to time. And the scoring the data was difficult. We went to using smooth muscles out of the rat uh, fundus, and there was a fellow named Glenn, and he was using those. And we thought, well, this looks interesting, but then we found that he was really essentially faking a lot of the data. He wasn't using uh, large enough numbers of compounds, wasn't doing it appropriate. So we did that briefly and said, okay, this isn't going to work. We did Hmm. a mouse mouse ear scratch, which looked promising, but that also was it wasn't reproducible with all the types of compounds. And in about 1984, we started using drug discrimination. Now, wait, can I, wait, now, I want to stop there. You were checking um, these animals for some sort of um, twitch response, an involuntary twitch response, which was either an ear scratch or a, a nose twitch or some, something that they were doing so that you could say, aha, we're, tr- we're, we're triggering the receptors that we're looking for to, to, to show that they're having an alternate experience. That's, that's what you're trying to do yeah, right, with those we, experiences. Basically, it, it, was a, it was a correlation type thing. Suppose you have uh, a bunch of mice and you give them various psychedelics and they do ear scratches or head twitches, which is one that they still use, and you count the number of, say, head twitches that they, they do over an hour, for example. And then you look at different compounds, and if you know the potency in humans, and so Sasha Shokin had published a potency on a lot of compounds in humans, if you put those compounds into mice, some would produce more head twitches than others. And so what you could essentially do was plot the number of head twitches versus the dose in humans. And if there was a correlation, you could say, okay, this head twitch is modeling something that these do in humans. But that's about as far as it, it went. You know, you didn't, you didn't have any of the, the rich, Mm-hmm. Uh, response that you'd see in human, obviously. Yeah. So drug discrimination was finally the assay that we used the most. And that's an assay where you train rats to respond to the effects of some kind of a CNS active drug. Uh, we, we used am- amphetamine. We used, uh, MDMA. We used LSD. We used DOI. Anything that has a central effect in humans, generally you can train rats to recognize the effect. You put them into a chamber that have two levers in the right and left front of the chamber. And you train the rats uh, to learn that when they're given the training drug, for example, you turn on the right lever, and if they press the right lever, they get a food pellet reward. It's basically a little 40-milligram sucrose pellet, so it's like a little rat candy. And you train the rats, and over a period of two to three months, they get to the point where they're very reliably trained. 
you put them in, if you give them a drug, if you give them LSD and they're supposed to press the right lever, you put them in the chamber, they'll press the right lever maybe 1,500 or 2,000 times in just a few minutes. So it's a very robust response. If you don't give them LSD and you give them the placebo, then they are trained to press on the opposite lever. So you can train rats very reliably. And the doses, the good thing about this assay is the doses are so small that they don't produce any other overt behaviors. So we were using a training dose of, of 80 micrograms per kilo uh, for LSD. Now, that's a big dose for humans, but not in rats. If you give rats that dose, you can't tell that they're any different at all. They behave completely normally. Right, but in so that it's a very mild dose. But now yeah, the but reason the fact- that you do that is so that if you say you have a mouse that can discriminate when it's been given LSD, you can then create a new experimental compound that's supposed to target the same receptors, give it to the mouse or the rat, and then fool them into thinking that they've taken LSD. And if you can do that, then you know that you're targeting the same receptors. Right. That's the model that you're working with there. Right. Now, you can do it with mice, but they're harder to train, and they don't remember the cue as long. But that's mm-hmm. basically what we would do. And so then we usually had a colony of anywhere from 12 to 16 rats that were trained, for example, in LSD. And you could give all those rats different doses, and so you could generate a whole what's called a dose-response curve, and then you would take the the dose that gave a 50% response to ED50, and we'd use that as a measure of potency. And so then we'd take those rats, and if we gave them an analog that had psychedelic-like effects, and they pressed on the, say, LSD lever, they basically were saying, I think you gave me LSD. And if they right. pressed on, on, if they pressed on the placebo lever, they're saying, I don't think he gave me LSD. And the power of that approach is, it's very specific, usually for the type of drug you train with. So if we trained the rat to discriminate LSD and then gave them an effective dose of something like amphetamine or cocaine, uh, or even MDMA, they won't press on the LSD lever, even if it's effective, because it's not like what they were trained on. So they'll press on the placebo. It's called the third state hypothesis, but basically it means that their response is specific to the training drug. Mm-hmm. So whatever, so whatever it was that LSD and DOI and mescaline were doing, <clears throat> the rats could learn to, you know, discriminate or appreciate that in- interoceptive cue. And then when we made new analogs, um, we could test them in the rats and then say, well, the rat would either say, I think you gave me a psychedelic or I don't think you gave me a psychedelic. And then we were started doing receptor binding and functional assays. So we could tie that in. And typically what we would do if we had a lot of compounds, uh, how could you, did, now, how are you doing receptor binding assays? Those were, those are lab, those the, are like in, in a dish yeah, under a microscope. Yeah. In the very beginning, we used, um, homogenate from uh, rat or pig cortex. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could get, there was a, there was this, um, we don't need to get meat. into huge detail, yeah, but I just I, wanted to get, yeah. get like an overview so, so people know what you're talking about when you say that you're doing, do the assay. Yeah, they were homogenates of brain cortex. And, but later on, um, and that was, you know, using animals and we always tried to get away and use as few animals as possible. So then eventually we started just using cloned receptors in cells. So you can grow cells in a petri dish, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then you can transfect them or, or get the receptor of interest. In this case, it was the human serotonin 2A receptor. We could transfect those cells, get the receptor to grow in those cells. And then you harvest the cells and you can do binding assays and functional assays with those cells. So eventually we, do, we were doing those assays and then we could do the animal studies and drug discrimination to see whether it correlated. So if a, a drug had high affinity for the, for the human serotonin 2A receptor and it also produced an effect in rats that was very potent, we could say, you know, we think this would be active in humans. But again, that was kind of a pale reflection of the, you know, the full human response, but that was sort of the best we could do. And I think that's probably the best about anyone could do as far as an animal model. I think, it, yeah, and I think it's the, 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 finding the correlation between the two, the receptor assays and the animal model, I think is a very strong argument for, for what you're doing. So we're talking, when we're talking hallucinogens, we're talking 5-HT2A and to a lesser extent the 5-HT2C, which are serotonin receptors. And when hallucinogens activate a 5-HT2A receptor, there is this this chain reaction that happens on the inside of the cell um, that you published a few papers on here. Now, were you the first person to start investigating this intracellular action, and and how did you go about studying that? Did we lose Dave? Hey, Dave, are you there? Dave? 
Well, Hello, everybody, we ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we lost. Trying to get his call back, so we have a we have a large section of topics that we want to get to, and there's still a lot of time. So if anybody out there has questions for Dave Nichols, you can send them to questions at dosenation.com. And when we get him back, we can try to get to those at the end of the show. We got some correspondence at Dose Nation from a Chinese research chemical company that was selling. Did you look at their website? They yeah. were selling something like 20 different legal, com- semi-legal compounds. Yeah, I, b- I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I was pretty amazed at the type of stuff that they had. Uh, like methylone, MDPV, MDAI, JWH, 6APB. I don't even know what 6APB is. I don't want to know what you. it is, to be honest. <laughs> um, it sounds like it might be, I, I don't know. I can, oh, oh wait, oh, they've got the uh, 5-MeO-MIPT. 4-FMA, 4-FA, 2-CE, 2-CI, 4-ACO, DMT. Oh, my God. Um, so many cathinones. Uh, the designer drug market, uh, the research chemical market, the great chemical market, is just exploding. I mean, I can't believe it. This is There's not even any uh, NBOME compounds on this list, and uh, that would you know add another 5 or 10 right there. But... It's you can just see how this field is is diversifying and growing every week. I'm surprised at the at the number of places that you can go online and buy these chemicals uh, in bulk. Uh, it's it's fairly amazing. It is, yeah. I, I I was surprised when you had told me about it. I didn't even know that they were really, um, you know, out there yeah, like that. I mean, I mean, most of the stuff I haven't even heard of. I mean, I haven't even. Uh, yeah, and this isn't Tor, this isn't Silk Road, this is just a website going to a company in China that you can make orders online with a with a credit card. Which, and, uh, to me, is, I mean, amazing that, that you can even do that. But, uh, you know, I mean, what, what, what was the one that you mentioned, 6A something? I mean, 6APB. You know, yeah, what the hell is I've that? Which I've heard of before, but I don't, I've never taken it. I'm not even sure what it is. I have to look it up. I, I would be a little terrified to take it, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, it's probably not the... Uh, six. Well, it's phenethylamine, um, similar to MDA. Oh, it's just an MDA analog. It's with a with a substitution. So yeah, it's it's you know it's you can take MDA and make uh, you know probably a dozen a dozen different substitutions on it that are still psychoactive and sell them as a new compound. So. So they don't even need to be very complex compounds. They can be very simple compounds with a, with a slight substitution, and suddenly it's a legal compound that's 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 active. Because and of one variant. Yeah, and if you take a drug like um, you know, sometimes if you add a substitution on a on a simple compound, like the methoxy substitution to it, you enhance the potency of that compound a little bit because it becomes harder to metabolize. Uh, and it lasts longer in the body. So even the smallest substitution Dave, to a, a normally psychoactive molecule can create a huge change in potency. So, or sometimes a slight slight change. So, Dave, really are you uh, back shape. with us here? So yeah, China seems to be the place where these 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 research chemical companies are popping up all and the time and everywhere. It's because they have. Um, they don't really have the same kind of industrial regulations that we do in terms of getting uh, precursor chemicals. And they have a lot of skilled laborers. I mean, they have a lot of educated people there who are ready to go into industrial chemistry and start churning these out. So it's a, you know, it's a perfect storm for uh, creating designer. And, you know, it's funny because you're going to have kids growing up now where their first interaction with hallucinogens is going to be something that's made from made from a factory in China, as opposed to uh, an underground or boutique chemist who's trying to make perfect LSD. You've got somebody who's you know in China making six APB or whatever it is, and that becomes Hello? your entree. Into Dave, the is that scene. is that it's you there, weird. sir? It's different from the way I was growing up. Dave, are you back with us now? Yeah, it, Skype dropped the call, and then when I tried to call back in. It wouldn't connect, and I could hear both of you talking. But uh, <laughs> and this. All right. Well, we'll try to move the conversation along a little bit. Um, yeah. I think this this will work out for the rest of the show. Um, so, what I was getting into was the intracellular mechanism 
that takes place when you have a hallucinogen hitting a 5-HT2A receptor. Uh, were you the first? Were, were your, was your lab the first place to start studying this in depth? Where did you get the idea to do that? And what what did you find happens on the inside of the membrane there after the receptor hit? Well, um, a lot of people have been looking. You know, you have affinity for the receptor, but the, really the key thing is whether it activates the receptor or not. And so we had all these drugs that had high affinity, but we didn't know whether they actually activate or not. And other people had looked at this receptor. No, can we talk about what happens when you activate a 5-HT2A receptor? I mean, what does that mean, activating the receptor? Okay, so the drug binds to the receptor on the outside of the cell, and when it binds, and the receptor is a protein that threads back and forth through the membrane. There's actually seven segments that thread back and forth, almost like a snail, a snake going through the membrane. And so the drug gets down inside and binds to the receptor protein, and that causes it to undergo a change in shape. It uh, twists it, like a little spring or something. Yeah, kind of, yeah. There's um, a little torsion or it, it so, bends so a little bit. You can imagine that what the receptor does, it wraps itself around the drug when it binds. Mm-hmm. If the drug is complementary. And there are uh, loops that come off of the inside of the receptor that are inside the cell those loops interact with a variety of different kinds of signaling uh, proteins. So uh, 5-HT2A receptors are a a member of the family of G-protein coupled uh, receptors, and so they couple to a GTP binding protein, uh, and that's that's associated with the loops on the inside of the receptor. So when the drug binds, it activates the receptor. It causes that G-protein to dissociate. And there's a bunch Which of means it floats, it floats away from the membrane towards the nucleus it, or the endoplasm. And then it, and it goes and interacts with, um, other, with second messenger signals, enzymes, etc. So phospholipase C is one of the enzymes that was known to be coupled or activated by these G protein coupled receptors that couple to what's called G alpha Q. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but then there are other signals. So we, we did the phospholipase but then the correlations are not great, and other people had subsequently looked at it too and said, well, you know, things can produce phospholipase C, but uh, they're not necessarily as potent to hallucinogens. So then we started looking at arachidonic acid, which was another signaling pathway that was activated by these receptors, and that turned out to be activated by a completely different signaling pathway. And uh, Brian Roth, a colleague of mine, had a postdoc named Niels Jensen who actually looked at eight different signaling pathways in uh, cells that had serotonin 2A receptors on. And these signaling pathways are all activated to different extents depending on the ligand. So what happened, there's a kind of a revolution in pharmacology taking place now where for a long time they thought receptors were just switches that turned on and off and activated mm-hmm. signals. Now they're realizing that receptors couple to a whole host of intracellular signals. And so a particular ligand or a particular drug may activate one type of signaling pathway, but another drug may activate a completely different signaling pathway. Even so, though they bind to the same receptor? The same, exact same receptor. So that's what you, yeah, okay, I just want to specify that. So after doing all of these studies, what do we know about the mechanism of hallucination and how it relates to these interests? these intracellular signaling pathways? Is there one that's more prevalent than, than any others, or is it still sort of ambiguous? Um, nobody really knows. Um, the, the studies that, that were done in Brian Ross lab, we, get, we sent him a bunch of ligands or drugs, um, psychedelic drugs, and he had some others, and they, they span the range from the phenethylamines to the tryptamines to ergot LSD derivatives. And um, they all produce different signaling fingerprints, if you will. So if you looked at these eight different signal pathways, they were turned on to a different extent. In general, the phenethylamines had a similar pattern. The tryptamines had a somewhat different pattern, and the LSD analogs had a somewhat different pattern. So the next thing was to say, well, do any of these signals correlate with activity? And the best activity we had for the range of ligands was drug discrimination in LSD-trained rats. So mm-hmm. many actually looked at correlations between the signaling pathways and those rats, the only signaling pathway that really correlated was an increase in intracellular calcium that occurs. And that's kind of a non-specific signal. Mm-hmm. So 
but we really don't know what it is and what and why LSD is different than all the other. No, I don't want to do do too much of a of a, of a diversion here. But calcium re- calcium release in the inside the cell is usually related to uh, synaptic strengthening and memory formation, or is that being too too generalized? Um, it can, it can do a number of things. It basically, you know, even uh, the phospholipase C, uh, IP3, causes a release of intracellular calcium. Mm-hmm. There are other methods. But calcium, calcium basically, calcium basically, the release of calcium means you're, you're priming the cell to do some kind of work. Yeah, all well, all these signals are, are telling the cell to do something in most cases. Right. But no, we, no one can point to a signal and say this is what psychedelics do in this cell that makes you know makes them unusual. Nobody can tell you that. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't heard it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so, so um, um, did you want to ask a question, Jake? Yeah, well, I wanted to kind of bring us into a different topic. Um, so, when when we were trying to get our audio fixed, James and I had a bit of a conversation about a Chinese company that you know, or any Chinese company for that matter, that's selling research chemicals. Um, you know, things with all different kinds of crazy names that I, you know, I mean, I I can't reproduce, <laughs> but you know, and and that hit the American streets. Um, you know, that are that are bought by people. And then, you know, somebody's at a rave or somebody's at some kind of concert and they take these, these different things and it, and it gets integrated into the drug culture. Um, now being someone who, who has synthesized a lot of, you know, new and different chemicals, what are your thoughts about, you know, people, about this, this, this culture that is beginning to emerge, um, from the sale of these, of, of these newly developed chemicals as opposed to the more traditional, you know, psychedelics like LSD, mescaline and so on? I think it's a, a pretty risky, large-scale human experiment. Um, you know, a lot of those so-called designer drugs that have that have been made in the Chinese labs and hit the markets, and I think I heard you say six APB and five APB. Those came out of my lab. And uh, right, yeah, that's why I was. That's why we were mentioning them. Yeah, and we did that. To, you know, uh, in MDMA has two oxygens, two oxygen atoms at one at the three and one at the four position, and we wondered which of those was more potent. So we took out one of them and replaced it with a carbon, and we took out the other and replaced it with a carbon. And that's 5-APB and 6-APB. <clears throat> so we were doing hypothesis-driven stuff, trying to figure out what these, you know, what part of the molecule was more important. And then we published uh, drug discrimination studies, I think in MDMA traps in that case. So somebody looked at that and said, oh, look, these things substitute in MDMA trained rats. Let's make them. And yeah. the, only inf- the only information we had on them was the fact that uh, they substituted in rats. That they we were active any, in rats, and that was good enough yeah. for them. And so we had no toxicology, no studies to show that they might be lethal or that they might damage kidneys or liver, anything. So that's the problem with all these things. Almost none of them have had any kind of toxicology. And I've heard recently that one of the new synthetic cannabinoids actually causes liver damage. And Right, you know, yeah. I'm, one of them, at <clears> least, <throat> if not many of them. Yeah, so... This is the problem with these these kinds of things, and it reminds me of something one of my graduate students said years ago, and I don't know if he originated it, but I certainly think it's true. Make one drug illegal, and a more dangerous one will take its place. You know, like synthetic cannabinoids, if marijuana had been decriminalized or, or legalized, you wouldn't have had all these synthetic cannabinoids. If LSD was still legal or decriminalized or whatever, you probably wouldn't have had a lot of these designer drugs. Same thing for ecstasy and DMA. The things that were classic that basically were not particularly toxic had been displaced by this plethora, you know, just this flood of new compounds that nobody knows anything about. It may be that some of them are benign, but, you know, who knows? And who knows whether they're producing some subtle damage. One of these things might turn out to be very nice compound for somebody to, to take as a recreational substance. They take it repeatedly over five or six months, and meanwhile it's doing something real insidious to their heart or their lungs or something that nobody knows about. I think it's very troubling. Right, and there are people, <clears throat> and the other thing is that people, um, you know, take take high high dosages of this stuff, and uh, you know, or, you know, have no idea what it's going to do with those high dosage, and you know, they as push you, the envelope. Right, exactly. I mean, they, you know, I mean, kind of what they're doing. You know, when you're going up to eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand, eleven hundred micrograms a day of chemicals that you know have no long term, um, you know, human studies. 
you know, to 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 go with them, and, you know, and and as you said, that may not be benign. Uh, you know, and some you, of these drugs you can't even find really good reports on heroin. No, I mean, they're, they're uh, so new yeah. you can't even you can't even tell if they're if they're uh, you know they're they're fun or if they're horrible. One one that so, is one that has gotten particularly big um, is twenty five I N bone. Oh right, so let's let's talk about the N B O M E yeah, series because and, that's um, I know they're I know all pretty popular. I know there was another chemist, um, Ralph Heim, who first got the idea to put these together. But can you tell me a little bit about how you take a twenty five or a a two C I chemical and then turn it into two uh, C I N B O M E or the twenty five I? What's what's the what's the substitution or the change there that makes it super potent? It's ridiculously easy. Okay, um, so yeah, go ahead. And, so Heim, he stumbled into this by a very circuitous route. Uh, he was dissecting some other molecules, and he, he sort of stumbled onto this. It turns out that <clears throat> uh, in the psychedelic phenethylamines, 2CB, for example, or 2CI, which are the, the beginning points for these uh, N-bone compounds, um, they're not particularly active. You know, with 2CIs, you know, 5 milligrams, 2CB, 5, 10 milligrams. If you put an N-methyl, on the nitrogen, their activity just drops way off. And propyl drops way off. But an N-benzyl, which is a far larger group, all of a sudden, the affinity for the receptor goes up a thousandfold. Now, now, when you say, when you say it's a far larger group, you're adding a substitution to the molecule, which is roughly the same size as the original molecule. Exactly. And so you're doubling the size of the molecule, but the active part still remains, uh, uh, still has its affinity at the receptor. Right. So, so if you say the affinity of, say, 2CB at the receptors, you know, say 5 nanomore, the, the 2, the 5, the 2, 5I in bone, the affinity is like 0.05 nanomore. Mm. It's like 100 times higher. So it's, it's very remarkable. And, um, Rolf Hyman just reported on these in, uh, rabbit ear artery as an assay because the serotonin 2 receptors are in, uh, blood vessels. So we mm-hmm. thought, well, this is really cool. Let's make some of these in ferret wider active. So we made a library of about 25 of them, putting all kinds of substituents on. And these were substituted out. phenethylamines, specifically? All started with 2,5-dimethoxy-4-iodo-phenethylamine-2-CI. Mm-hmm. And basically just took different things, different aromatic um, methyl groups onto the nitrogen to see, you know, could you put an aphylene, a pyridine, you know, different substituents on the ring. And basically what we concluded is that that binds in the receptor, that ring in, engages one of the phenylalanine amino acids that's in the receptor, and that an orthomethoxy on that ring is a hydrogen bond acceptor. So there's something in the receptor that's hydrogen bonding to it. We don't, we have not got docking studies. We're working on that now, trying to find out where this actually docks in the receptor that makes it interact the way it does. But these drugs are extremely potent, and you know there have been several deaths of people yes. in North Dakota, uh, some other places. This actor that went nuts supposedly was taking this, and I frankly don't know what's going on because a lot of people send me emails on there where they say, "Oh, it's really nice." The doses, you know, 200 to 400 micrograms, and I'm thinking, how did these people die? Was it a contaminant, or did they just, you know, nasally insufflate 10 or 15 milligrams, or what exactly did they do? Because these people that get these things, and the stuff is so easy to make. If you if you got two CI, you can make you know the N-bone compound. It's it's a it's a one-step reaction basically, and it's it's not a big deal. So if somebody makes five grams of this stuff and it just gives people you know here's ten milligrams or a hundred milligrams, and they don't appreciate how potent it is, it's it's like uh, you know. So there's can, a there's a couple things going on. Um, I I think uh, when people get the two CI or the the two five I. There is sometimes some confusion over what it actually is. I think some people taking it thinking it's actually 2CI and not 25I, and they take way too high a dose, and it's it's enough to make them pass out to have a, to have an overdose. And I think in some cases you get this extreme uh, brain swelling that that causes people to pass out and have very bad reactions. And I think that's 
that's what people are overdosing or it's some kind of cardiovascular response from, from just taking too much all at once. Even the police and the media are confused because when they say that people are overdosing on 2CI, they don't realize it's the NBOM variant of 2CI. And even when they do like a, like a lab assay, the results sometimes come back as 2CI and not the, and not the NBOM variant. So, there's confusion, I think, in the users, the police who are trying to figure out what this compound is, and you know, even in the people in the hospitals trying to figure it out because it's just so new, and they're not expecting this compound to be on the street at potencies similar to LSD. I think in some cases the people who are taking it think that they might be taking LSD just because it's it's such a small. They're they're, they're taking it in nose drops or eye drops or something like that. What what is the most potent compound? I mean, for a long time it was LSD, but I think something in your lab is is even more potent now. Is it twenty five I or which which is the most potent one? The most potent one that we made was um, a derivative of LSD, where we replaced the methyl on the basic nitrogen with an ethyl group. It was called Ethlad, mm. um, and that compound is probably. If LSD is, the dose of LSD is 100 micrograms, the dose of that's probably 70 to 80 micrograms. And so it's, it's a conformationally restricted molecule like LSD? No, no, it's just, uh, we just oh. replaced the on the nitrogen with an ethyl. Oh, okay. It's wow. pretty hard, it's pretty hard to make, so you're not ever going to see that on the street, but. Right, uh, it's an elaborate process to, to put it together. Yeah, you have to make LSD and then you have to destroy it. You have to sort of destroy it to get the methyl off. And then you have to put the, there's a couple reactions to get to that. Then you have to put the ethyl back on and purify it. So it's not something that would be economical. The thing about, the thing that drives a lot of this, uh, designer drug chemistry is the economy of it. You know, mm-hmm. the endome compounds, I think, and I saw the same thing you did. The police were saying, oh, it's 2CI, it's 2CI. I'm going, this is not 2CI. They need to get their facts right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, the, the case in North Dakota, the fellow there that gave it to a friend that, that died, um, his attorney contacted me, and they were saying, well, they're going to prosecute him under the Analogs Act as an analog of 2CI. You know, is it an analog of 2CI? And I said, well, from my understanding of the way these court cases go, and I've done some, they're going to put a jury in there, they're going to draw a picture of 2CI, and they're going to draw a picture of the 2.5i, and boom, and they're going to show how they're similar, and they're going to cite the pharmacology, and they're going to say, yeah, just got this other thing stuck, but it's an analog. I said, you're not going to beat it. You know, you might as well plea or whatever because the, the jury is, you know, they'll give it to a jury and the jury is not sophisticated to know any subtleties. And it has the same effect, basically. So, right. Uh, I mean, there's a difference between an analog and a substitution, but it's semantic at some point. The law doesn't care. Yeah. And, you know, there are more of those things that could appear in the black market than have appeared. It's just a question of somebody deciding, you know, you could start with 2CE, 2CB, 2CT, whatever, and put an N-benzyl on them, and all of them, the potency is going to go up 100 to 1,000 fold. So we're just, this is just the beginning. It, it could potentially could be. And when you've got a Chinese lab that says, hey, if it's not illegal, we'll make a kilo of it for $3,000 and ship it to you, um, you know, I don't know how you stop that. So what do you what? think of kids who nowadays their first their first entree into the field of psychedelics is not something like mushrooms or LSD or, or MDMA? It's it's like twenty five I in a nose drop that they that they take, and that's that's their idea of what a, a psychedelic trip is like. Does that does that kind of blow your mind a little bit, or is it just more grist well, in the mill? It kind of does, but I don't know enough about the effects of twenty five I and boom. Um, the things I've read, the, the reports that I've seen for the most part say this is really wonderful stuff. Uh, yeah. So I, I would guess that if, you know, if they are working in reasonable doses, that, you know, I don't know what the difference would be between that and LSD or mushrooms. If, if they're doing it in an appropriate situation where they've got somebody sitting with them so they don't injure themselves and, you know, and they're not taking a toxic dose, uh, if they're going to use one versus the other, I'm not sure what advantages or disadvantages would be. The thing we know about things like LSD, mescaline, or mushrooms is that they're safe, mm-hmm. physically safe. You know, you don't read about anybody taking too much LSD or eating too many mushrooms and dying. And that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's, you know, you can't, you can't reverse that decision. Okay, so let me, let me take it one step further and, and sort of dig this question in a little bit more. Um, 
chemists in the psychedelic field are often revered like saints. There's, there's uh, Albert Hoffman, there's Alexander Shulgin, and now that your compounds are becoming more popular, do you sort of resist that tendency for the psychedelic community to raise you to the level of, of sainthood as like the father of the Enbohm compounds or whatever, whatever title that may be bestowed upon you? How do you feel about that personally? I sure hope they don't do it. I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm really not. You don't seem like, you don't seem like the type of guy that would go for any of that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I, you know, I'm not into hero worship. I don't, you know, all these people in in the underground, so to speak, the, the alternative culture. I'm, you know, I'm very, an, you know, anti-authoritarian, iconoclastic, and I just, you know, when I see somebody put somebody up on a stand, I go, it's just a chemist, you know. Albert Hoffman, I knew Albert. He's a wonderful guy. He, yeah. you know, he's Kind of guy you want for your the grandfather for your kids, wonderful, loving guy. Um, but you know he stumbled onto LSD. He was blessed or cursed, depending on your perspective, to do that. And uh, you know Sasha Shogun was just making compounds by trial and error, and you know the ones the good ones got out there. And there's there's nothing really magic about it. It's it's chemistry really, and if you're lucky, you find something interesting or. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting statement that you made. There's nothing about magic about it. It's just chemistry. But chemistry really is a kind of magic. I mean, like taking electrons from one molecule and sticking them together, and and all of that stuff. I mean, that's pretty much the magic of the way reality is put together. Well, I would say chemists know that chemists. It's easy to chemists because they know that specific trick. But to the rest of us, it seems like a kind of magic. Yeah, maybe so. But I mean, it's just like it's like art, I guess. You know, you. Cr- you look. You create a molecule, and if it's it's a beautiful molecule, if it does something positive and useful, then you can. It's like a work of art. Yeah, there, there's a talent in knowing what how to put these together, I guess. But it's not something that uh, you know that you really think about, and it takes tremendous insight and genius or whatever. I mean, most of the compounds that are out there, well, the compounds we made were all pretty much hypothesis driven, like five and six APB. You know, we want we question which of these oxygens is more important, and does that one of them affect the oxygen more than you know affect the biology more than the other? So you know, we did it for that reason. It wasn't because we were particularly creative. We made an LSD analog where we tied the diethyl groups into a four-membered azetidine ring with methyls on, and, and found the confirmation that the diethyl groups must be in when they bind to the receptor. You know, there's no magic. It was like a very specific hypothesis-driven question that we asked. Mm-hmm. If those compounds ever get out, I mean, I don't know about the azetidide, what kind of effects it has. It's, it's as potent as LSD in the rats, but it might turn out to be some wonderful compound. And that, you know, the, all I did was, you know, was hypothesis-driven science. So maybe I'm trivializing what I do a little bit much, but it is true. I think, <clears throat> you know, um, I made the DMT for Rick Strassman's study. You know, his right. DMT yeah, study. I remember that. Mm-hmm. And he had a party after he finished the study, and he had most of the subjects there. And I went out there, and they were coming up to me going, oh, you, you're you so fantastic. You make the most wonderful DMT and everything. And I was really kind of uncomfortable because it was like chemistry. It was simple to make. Here's the molecule. But when these people had this experience, it was like, oh, this DMT. Dave Nichols made this DMT. And it's kind of very weird because I don't, you know, I don't get into that that much. But when you think about it, People would rather take DMT made by you, Dave Nichols, respected chemist, Purdue University, with your your CV and all of your credentials and publications, as opposed to guy with a container of acetone in his basement, uh, you know, pumping it out for for street kids. I mean, I mean, honestly, there is a pedigree that goes with with your your name and title that people instill in whatever experience that they they get from from the drug. Yeah, and none of them would ever get anything I made in my lab. But I mean, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I remember years ago that somebody was uh, selling something, and they said this came out of Sasha's lab, and like people go, "Oh wow!" And I'm going, "That's bullshit. It didn't come out of Sasha's lab. Sasha doesn't make stuff that he distributes to people." But that was like I said, it, it gave me kind of provenance. Like, oh, this is some. This came out of Sasha's lab. Well, nothing ever came out of Sasha's lab. It never hit the streets. I can pretty well guarantee that. And the same thing for our stuff, but I, I'm sure people, if they had really pure stuff, say, "Oh yeah, this this is acid that came out of Nichols' lab," because you know he makes the most pure acid in the world. <laughs> 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 I, 
<laughs> that's not a lie. We did make the purest acid in the world, but no, now, no, no, that that is, no, no, no. Uh, talk, talk to me a little bit about the most purest acid in the world. Somebody was telling me about a quad sap or, or, or like a four or five. How do you make the purest acid in the world? We had a little device called a chromatotron. Mm-hmm. It's like, like a, it's a circular spinning plate that spins at 800 RPM. It's got a coating of silica gel on it, so it's like a thin layer chromatography plate. But if you calculate the circumference and the edge of the plate in the, from the middle, you put the solvent with the compound in the middle of the plate while it's spinning, and as it spins out to the edge, it acts like a preparative TLC. And so the surface-to-adsorbent ratio increases dramatically as it approaches the circumference of this plate, which is about 12 inches. And so LSD has this bright blue fluorescence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, ISO-LSD has kind of a greenish-yellow fluorescence, and there's some other compounds. So this thing is a quartz window, so you just shine a long-wave ultraviolet mm-hmm. through it, and you see this bright blue fluorescent band moving, migrating out to the edge of the plate. And as soon as it gets out to the outer edge, you stick the test tubes under, you collect that, concentrate it down. We did everything under a red light, kept it cold, and concentrate it down and crystallize it and get snow white crystals. This is what we mm. see around. So, you know, I, I never Forgive really me if my mouth is watering. <laughs> that sounds amazing. See, now that is magic. That is a kind of magic. You're, that is artistry right I there. I agree. Trying to get that compound with that, that level of purity. It is art. Yeah, we, we had basically when we made most of our compounds, the ones we were really proud of where the chemistry worked well, the student would come in and give me the sample for testing. He says, this is UFP grade. <laughs> UFP grade. And if I could use a, is it okay to cuss on the Sure, air? expletives are fine. UFP is ultra fucking pure. <laughs> we, I gotta remember that. I have to be looking for the UFP. Yeah, ultra pure. So we made things like that. White crystalline snow egg, white. So that, you know, a chemist, um, I kind of had a, a thing in the lab where somebody, if they made a compound that no one had ever made before, and they would bring it in and go, oh, I got the, finally got the final compound. I'd hold it up and I said, do you realize that the concentration gradient for this compound throughout the whole universe is pointing to this lab? This stuff doesn't exist anywhere else in the universe. Oh, my but God. I, that is weird. But then I had one graduate student said, how do you know that? Right. I said, I don't, I don't actually, but... It it's all organic chemistry to some extent, if you can find the right organic conditions somewhere. So um, let me ask you a little bit about these conformationally restricted compounds because I'm not uh, I'm I'm confused about how those differ from the MBOME compounds. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what what you mean by conformationally restricted? So um, many compounds, most compounds have flexible bonds. They can move into many different shapes, and the shape a particular shape is called a conformation. So phenethylamines like 2CB or 2CI. They have two rotatable bonds, really, in the side chain. And so they can actually swing around and actually uh, displace a large space around the side chain. Mm-hmm. So the, we asked a question a long time ago, what is the overall conformation of the molecule when it binds to the receptor? And so we made TCB2, which is actually a commercial compound that you can get from Tokris, and it's a 2CB analog, and it's quite potent. And the side chain is locked into a particular shape. And we resolved it into the actual optical isomer. That's the one that's most potent. And so we looked at that and said, okay, so when amphetamines or things like 2CB bind to the receptor, this is the shape the side chain's got because it can't move anymore. It's locked. It's constantly So, So let me, I'm going to try to give people a little visualization. The, the psychoactive molecule, the ligand, uh, it might be like a little fish. It's wiggling around in there, and it's got a little tail that wiggles. But when it attaches to the receptor, the tail can only be in that w- and wiggled to one position, left or right, or at a certain angle. Yeah, You're trying to make a fish that's always stuck at the same angle, so it'll always fit into the receptor at the, re- at the right position. So we stick that little fish's tail, we lock it into a bunch of different shapes, and then we throw them in and we see which one sticks. Wow. Amazing, and so and so. What did you find? You found that uh, that it, if you have a you have a conformational position at a certain angle with the molecule, you increase potency. How much? By what fold? Um, it depends. It it may not any it may not even increase it that much, but it tells you what the shape of the thing is, which was what the question was that we were asking. So we took the endbone compounds. Mm-hmm. We published for, uh, actually in January this year. I think it came out. 
where we made a whole bunch of confirmation restricted analogs by putting different things on and um, finally found one that was a dye-substituted piperidine. And it didn't have the affinity of the 25, the 225i endbone, um, which was like a 0.05 uh, nanomore. The affinity was like 2 nanomore. Mm. But of all compounds we made, that was the most potent. And so we said, okay, we think this is the overall shape of that thing when it binds to the receptor. And we're actually doing some follow-up studies on that now. Um, but we did that with the phenethylamines to sort of identify what the side chain is. We did it with the endbone compound, which uh, sort of gave us an idea of what it must look like. We did it with LSD, as I mentioned earlier, where we took the diethyl groups. LSD is a diethyl amide. Mm -hmm. We incorporated the diethyl groups into a four-membered ring with methyls on it called a dimethylazetidine. And that has, because of the geometry of this four-membered azetidine ring, the methyl groups can be sticking out on the same side of the ring, or they can be on opposite sides of the ring in two different orientations. So you had three possible isomers. And so the one that was most active... So when you say three possible isomers, you're saying depending on which way the drug is is turned, it could act like three different drugs. Yeah, or, it, I mean, it would it would essentially be three different drugs. It would be as if you could take the, the, the diethyl groups of LSD and they spin around normally. But if you mm -hmm. could lock into three different shapes so they were glued that way, and then mm -hmm. you threw them at the receptor and you say, which one fits the best? Uh, I we see. Found, we found the one that fits the best. And what that told us was if we didn't have it locked into a four-membered ring, if those other groups are free to move, this is probably the orientation that they would take on when they bind to the receptor. Mm -hmm. Fascinating work. So, so, so what's next for you? Yeah, what's, what's, yeah, what's on your research bench? Tell us where we can find your um, some of your uh, work. Um, what, um, you go to the National Library of Medicine and just search on my name. You'll get most of the papers. Um, whether you get when you can get them or not, um, if you go to National Library of Medicine, you can find my papers. There's a link usually to the journals. The journals typically require a subscription, so if anybody wanted to get them, they could get them. But you can you can usually get them for twenty dollars or twenty five dollars for a download if you're not at a, an institution that has a site license for that. Um, and there are other places to find your papers online. I think Arrowhead has a has a large library of research papers available. Uh, some of your papers are available there, although I'm not sure they're completely. Uh, it uh, depends on the it depends on the copyright laws. Right, depends uh, on the copyright law. Yeah, most of these are not supposed to be accessible, but um, it depends on the and the journals have made some of them open source. The older journals, so you can find a lot of them that way. Mm -hmm. but, and so, what's uh, what are you working on now? Well, uh, you know, I retired from Purdue in June, and so I'm, I'm an adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Pharmacy. So I'm doing a range of things here, um, some for the lab that I'm working in, but also uh, working on some things to further explore the this N-benzyl effect um, on another series of compounds. We still have papers to write up. I still have papers. You know, I, I had another research field, which was studying dopamine D1 receptor, Agonist. Those mm. drugs are really are really efficacious in, in park models of Parkinson's disease. Right, 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 right. And one of my drugs is in clinical trials now in schizophrenics to see if it can improve working memory and cognition. That trial will be done at the end of this year, probably. And then we also are still, and we have a, we have developed an uh, activated uh, model of the dopamine D1 receptor. We're also developing an activated model of the serotonin 2A receptor and docking some of these uh, molecules in there to try to get a better sense for how they actually fit into the receptor and how they activate it. Um, and also um, doing a lot of screening. We made, when I was at Purdue, we made uh, 38 different LSD analogs with different amides, and those are all being screened, and we'll do some assays on those and maybe publish a short review article on all those if we find something out about why LSD is so much more potent than the other compounds. But those right. data are... Still to come. Yeah, and I have to say that your review, uh, Hallucinogens in uh, Pharmacology and Therapeutics, is probably one of the best papers on the subject of 5-HT2A binding and, and hallucinogenic activities that I've, that I've read. Very comprehensive, very detailed. 
Yeah, um, thank if you. Anybody uh, can, if anybody can find that paper, that's I think that's the one that you should read to get the best overview. Of. I, and I've, a lot of people have asked me for background, and that's the one I've sent to them. Colleagues in the field, after that paper came out, colleagues in the field who who work in the serotonin receptor field and with hallucinogens, I mean, without, without exception, came to me and said, like, wow, that is a fantastic review. And I had one fellow tell me, all the students that come to my lab, this is the first thing I tell them to read. Yeah. And the thing, the thing about it was people said, Dave, you're the only one that could have written that. Just a medicinal chemist couldn't have brought the biology in, and no pharmacologist could have brought in the chemistry and medicinal chemistry. So I was really happy with it. Um, I, someone asked me if I wanted to update it. I said, I don't think so right now, not for a while anyway. It took me a couple of years to write that. Yeah, I imagine. It's it's very comprehensive. It's a great it's a great piece of work. Um, your son is in the field, isn't he? Yes. Um, he's actually been looking at Drosophila, uh, the serotonin system in Drosophila, but also, fruit fly. yeah, fruit fly. And he, yeah. we also came on a model of, uh, uh, animal model schizophrenia, which involved giving rats somewhat larger doses of LSD than we used for drug discrimination. And he's been following that up, doing, uh, looking at changes in gene expression, trying to correlate it with, uh, gene expression changes from schizophrenia brain and so forth and see, you know, is there a face validity to that model? Um, so, and he also discovered that uh, DOI, which is a psychedelic amphetamine, which has never gotten popular on the street, I think probably because it lasts so long. Mm-hmm. DOI turns out to be a very good anti-inflammatory agent. He published that paper a couple years ago, surprisingly, uh, at concentrations that are way below anything that would be psychoactive in humans. Now, is this specifically pop- is this specifically cardiovascular tissue or just in general anti-inflammatory? No, what he, he looked initially at, um, cardiac epithelial muscle cells mm-hmm. and looked at the, inf- the pro-inflammatory cascade. What they would do is put TNF alpha in the cells and that induces a whole uh, series of uh, pro-inflammatory changes in the cells. And, uh, they could completely block that with, uh, in cells with DOI at a concentration of 20 picomolar, which is 10 So it's a super, it's a super potent anti-inflammatory. Super potent. He's also shown that, um, I don't know if he's published all this or not, but shown that he can block the development of asthma in rats by pretreating with DOI as well. Hmm. So it may be a joke. And, this is, and these are all because of the serotonin's effect on the cardiovascular and, her, and respiration system, basically. Actually, what happened after he got to uh, LSU in New Orleans, he wanted to work on serotonin 2 receptors, and he didn't have a license to work with Schedule 1, which most of them are. And he said, are there any 5-HT2 agonists that aren't controlled substances? And I said, well, DOI. Mm. He said, could I, mm-hmm. could I get some of that? And he had just hired a postdoc from another lab that had been working in a cardiovascular area looking at um, cardiovascular disease. And this guy had some cells growing up and had been doing this assay. And he said, you know, is there anything I can test? And Chuck said, no, and, and nothing you can, that I know of. I said, what about the DOI? And he basically laughed and said, you know, yeah, is won't do anything. And postdoc said, well, I've got the cells. I'll have to destroy them if I don't use them. So Chuck said, yeah, go ahead and do it. He came back a week later and said, it's unbelievable. It's 20 picomolar, which is more potent than anything they'd ever seen. Chuck mm-hmm. didn't believe it. So he went in the lab and repeated experiments, got superimposable dose response curves. So they sent that in, and it was published in JPEG, I think, a couple of years ago. It was one of their featured papers. And one of the reviewers, he said, uh, said, you know, is the commercial DOI as potent as the stuff you got from your dad? Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Well, I'm glad that your son is following in your footsteps, and it's great to see a family uh, like yours in the psychedelic scene that's uh, that's doing such amazing work, such interesting work, and getting such great results. Um, I don't think 20 years ago we could have imagined all of the uh, all of the, the new information that that's come out of your lab. And it's it's really uh it's really great to talk to you and uh, catch up with all of this information. Jake, do you have anything to add? Yeah, you know what? Thank you so much for joining us, Dave. And uh, make sure everybody out there, if you can find um, any of Dave's papers, read them definitely. Uh, yeah, search for the uh, paper "Hallucinogens from Pharmacology and Therapeutics," and if you can find that anywhere online, it's definitely worth the download, and it will answer all of your questions about about these uh, 5-HT2A systems and uh, the hallucinogenic effect. Dave, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yes, likewise, Um, and thank you very much uh, for coming on. uh, It's a pleasure. We'll have to uh, do it again sometime. 
Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dose Nation. I am your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us. And, of course, uh, with me, as always, co-host and uh, founder of Dose Nation, James Kent. And you can find uh, our back podcasts at dosenation.com, the entire archive, our RSS feed, the link to our iTunes page. You can contact us there. And, uh, yeah, check us out, dosenation.com. Yeah, and also remember to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash dosenation. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's twitter.com forward slash dosenation as well. Make sure you go there and check that out. Well, thanks for joining us, and have a fantastic evening, everybody. We'll see you next week at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. So have a good week. See you then.